that's my opinion and they just need to get rid of solitary confinement because it it makes good people bad and it makes bad people worse so kim how has your week been Oh, it's been great. Yesterday was my parents' 60th anniversary, and I'm taking them out to dinner tonight. And so, yeah. How about you? Uh, it's been good. It's my first week back from being on vacation, which has been really, really nice. I had a lot of fun with my family, ate a lot of really great food. My mother and my grandmother were both cooking for me, so I was really lucky nice. with that. Nice. <laughs> Um, how were your holidays? Oh, they were great, thank you. I spent time with my family and um, my kids came over and stayed, which is nice. Once they've left and they come back, it's really fun to spend time. We had fun playing games as well and doing... Uh, I, I did all the cooking for Christmas dinner, which is, you know, in my family is kind of weird because I was never much of a cook and so still am not, but I'm functional, so that was good. <laughs> did you make anything absolutely delicious that you're kind of proud of you want to brag about? Well, people liked my stuffing. Usually my sister makes the stuffing, and she makes a delicious stuffing. And I was trying to give her a full break this year from cooking. Mm -hmm. So usually years past when I first started hosting family dinners, because my mom has dementia, I started hosting them, and uh, everybody would contribute food. And this year I thought it would be a nice break for everybody that I do all the cooking. So mm, that's nice it wasn't quite as delicious for everybody as if everybody had brought their best dishes, but that's all right. <laughs> So yeah, this is the first content-filled episode of Appointed. I'm really looking forward to this episode. We're talking about segregation. It's something that um, you've talked a lot about publicly in the media. Um, so let's just jump right in. Mm -hmm. One consistent stance you've maintained is that the use of se segregation in Canada needs to end. Why do you believe this? I don't think it's necessary. We long ago got rid of segregating in so many other areas. My kids often used to refer to them as animal jails because that's what I call them when we go to a zoo or uh, and you long since have we gotten rid of the cages that animals were in because it was perceived as inhumane and something that was actually tortuous for animals. If it's tortuous for other animals, why isn't it also tortuous for human beings? And so while we've talked about limits and the United Nations has made limits, I actually have seen evidence and believe that we could get rid of segregation altogether, not just solitary confinement. So what's actually the difference between segregation and solitary confinement? Can you explain that for us? Well, some would say, and certainly the courts have, in Canada have recently said there is no difference. I think part of the confusion comes and why corrections would argue there's a difference is solitary confinement is often thought of individual cages where people or structures where people are isolated all by themselves for extended periods of time, anywhere from 21 to 24 hours a day. Uh, segregation by law in our statutes is a separation from general population of individuals and it's both a status of being separated and it's also a place called segregation which is like solitary confinement which is where I think some of this, the confusion or the, the mixing up of these two comes from. So if you're at all separated from the general population in our laws, in the correction, under the Corrections and Conditional Release Act, you are actually segregated from the general population. So you may be in a small group of two people, anywhere up to ten if, it's, if the 
the cells in the living unit you're in are segregated or are double bunked, but you're living in still a segregated population. And what's interesting from my perspective, when the uh, the Senate Human Rights Committee has gone into the prisons, it took every one of the senators who was with us no more than a couple of minutes to realize that these situations were segregated conditions, even though it's taken, it's been very difficult sometimes to explain that to a judge, to lawyers, to people who actually don't see what, what it actually, we're talking about and what it actually looks like. But anybody who sees them, to a person, I've seen nobody have difficulty then understanding how the isolation when you're, you know, 100 yards, 200 yards, half a kilometer from the front gate, but there are all of the people in between you do not have access to. And so not surprising that kind of isolation actually, I think, generates problems, generates issues between people. And not only that, if, if then we're visited uh, by somebody who gets to go through the entire population and you're told that in the, the next unit beside us where the two or three or five or six women or uh, men, if it's a, men, a prison for men, are living, that they actually got something more than we got last week. It's, it starts to generate friction between the groups or the pods or the segregation units. And so that's actually what we've seen develop over the last, particularly the last 20 years. But in prisons, it's easy for that to develop because the only people who have the ability to move through those units are the people of the power and the authority and are the staff and sometimes it uh, generates even more friction which then becomes the tautological becomes the circular argument for actually continuing that isolation mm. instead of stopping and saying you know how do we stop this and how do we actually work with individuals so that if we do have real issues if you and I had issues we're sitting across from each other we try and resolve them mm -hmm. if if as soon as we had an issue they took us and separated us how would that do anything except maybe put the issues on ice for a while or maybe cause them to escalate? Right. It doesn't, certainly doesn't teach us anything about how we actually resolve those issues. Right. So for folks who have been reading the news and looking at what the government action has been recently, they might believe that Bill C-83 has actually ended segregation and solitary confinement. What would you say to those folks? How would you explain um, what Bill C-83 has done? Well, Bill C-83 in its current form um, proposes the renaming of segregation and removing many of the procedural safeguards, limited as they are, ineffective as they are, that currently exist. And while I recognize that the minister and many senior correctional authorities are saying that their intention is to eliminate the use of segregation in federal penitentiaries. Anybody who believes this bill will do it is missing, either doesn't know what's happening in prisons on a day-to-day -day basis or is being misled by what they're being told because it's very clear just from a read of the bill, anybody who's gone into prisons recognizes we're talking about renaming units and we're talking about taking away some of the reviews that now have to happen when someone is placed in segregation. We're also talking about even more serious in some ways than that is making it easier to put people into those units because by removing those procedural safeguards and now saying that sections, other sections of the law that currently allow for people to be transferred out of prisons, not just to segregation, but out of prisons, uh, can now be used to transfer them to those units. Things like saying someone needs mental health support, uh, you can use a Section 29 transfer, which most of us think of as the transfer provision that allows 
uh, correctional authorities to transfer people out of, out of prisons into hospitals, usually for physical health issues, but can also be used for mental health issues. Now it will allow Section 29 to be used to transfer someone within a prison into one of these intensive supervision, i.e. segregation units. Right. So instead of somebody who perhaps um, should have the opportunity to go and get better mental health supports um, in a psychiatric unit, instead of being transferred there, they can be actually transferred to segregation. That's correct. Yes. And and the reality is, um, you know, we should be looking at all of the recommendations that have been made over the years from inquests into deaths of people in custody to examinations of what's best for people who have mental health issues. Every recommendation is to get people out of prison into appropriate mental health facilities, not to develop more mental health facilities in prisons, because where those have been attempted, what we see is an entrenchment and, and a bleed-in of the correctional mentality to those people providing mental health services. And, you know, essentially, um, always security will trump therapeutic needs. And so, you know, I often use the example of at the Regional Psychiatric Center in Saskatoon, mm-hmm. which is duly designated a psychiatric hospital and a federal penitentiary. At one point, we were told that uh, I was asked to start to assist by the head psychiatrist because even though he was in charge of therapy and he was directing a course of action for a woman, the correctional authorities trumped his position even though he was in charge and he said basically the woman needed an advocate because if he was unsuccessful, and my conclusion is if he, the head of the institution for therapeutic issues, could not actually prevail in that moment, then we you know, we have no hope that if someone in a more junior position would be able to succeed in, in convincing correctional officers or correctional authorities that someone needs to be treated in a therapeutic way. Many of us have heard the horrible story of Ashley Smith. She was a teenager who died in a segregated prison cell at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario in 2007. From your perspective, what should Ashley Smith's story teach us about the use of segregation? Well, it teaches a lot of things, not just about segregation, but about how we categorize people, um, how we label behavior, and how those labels can manifest and continue on despite and regardless of the actual behavior of the individual. In Ashley's um, case, she was described as one of the most dangerous and unruly prisoners the prison had dealt with. And yet, during the inquest into her death, which was held because she died in custody and because in Ontario, Uh, when there's a death in custody it's mandatory there be an inquest it's not necessarily true in every province or territory but when the inquest was held person after person who took the stand talked about the fact that they knew Ashley was dangerous but she wasn't like that with them so what emerged was a picture of people being predisposed to believing they were dealing with someone who had behavioral issues she was never identified as having mental health issues when she was alive it wasn't until she was dead that she was identified as having mental health issues. And so what it teaches us is two things. One, that there's a presumption that people coming into the prison system come in and the primary issue is criminality and that any behavior, any um, behavior is symptomatic of that criminal label, not, in, as in Ashley's case, symptomatic of a mental health issue, perhaps, or symptomatic of her age and her, her resistance to authority because she was 15. And 
the other thing is the only way that corrections knew how to deal with that, and I would say it's still the case, is when there's someone who they're not sure how to deal with who is mouthy or who challenges them, uh, is perceived as challenging them, not necessarily physically, um, is to punish them or and and or isolate them. And they did both of those things in Ashley's situation. So they took away the things that she actually liked to do that constructively she would engage with, reading, writing, drawing, um, visiting with her family. They removed many of those for either the entire time or extended periods of time and increasingly left her more and more isolated in isolated conditions. And she spent um, all but one day that I know of her entire time in federal custody, in addition to being moved 17 times, in addition to being pepper sprayed, put in shackles, put in full restraints, uh, left naked in her cell sometimes, left with only a security gown. She had all of those other things removed. And so she started to do things that she had never done before in her life. Started to hurt herself, started to tie ligatures around her neck. And what ultimately, she, she died ultimately because corrections did not go in to save her when she had a ligature tied around her neck. The staff had to write up use of force reports. I can't imagine what it's like to crave human contact so badly that I would have a violent intervention rather than no human contact. But that's the state she was in by the time she had been 11 and a half months in segregation in the federal penitentiary and a number of months in provincial adult custody and then a number of years in youth uh, in juvenile custody. So what you see is horrendous physical results for her, Not, and I don't mean just her death, but even before her death, that she was harming herself, that she was, um, she couldn't, you know, sometimes she would talk, but she couldn't hold her thoughts together in her head. She would be emotional. She was uh, distraught. She would be, would sometimes act in a volatile way. She might say something that would be perceived as a threat. But when you're a staff member and you've got a locked door between you, how realistic is that threat? And so, yes, she did all of those things, but what, what she never did was a serious violent incident involving other people. And so, and so we see the impact of that. And um, instead of learning to trust the people she was dealing with, she learned to distrust everybody she was dealing with. And so in the end, she died. Um, she was, uh, it was ruled a homicide by the inquest jury because when she died, she was actually under the, the watch of three cameras, constant observation, which, as the name would indicate, means a staff member posted right at her door watching her every minute, and five staff responsible for intervening, and nobody intervened until she had died, when, until it was too late, and she died as a result. And so even though officers were charged with criminal negligence causing death, one of the reasons no charges were pursued was because the staff indicated that they had been ordered not to intervene so that so many use of force reports wouldn't be registered. And so we have this horrendous reality that the dehumanizing impact is not just on prisoners, but also on staff. After explaining a bit about what segregation in Canada looks like, we wanted to hear the perspective of someone who has survived segregation and now joins the call to end the use of segregation and solitary confinement in Canada. We spoke with Renee Ackaby. For a time, Renee was referred to in mass media as the most dangerous woman in Canada. But the more I listen to folk stories, the more I learn that these labels tell us virtually nothing about the person they're referring to. I'll let Renee explain the rest. 
So, Renee, for a time you were known by some as Canada's only female dangerous offender. I'm wondering if you could talk about what the label of dangerous offender means from your perspective. Well, I know that dangerous, the dangerous offender um, label is actually reserved for people that are considered the worst criminals in Canada. And it's usually reserved for serial killers. Um, I mean, people with, uh, who have committed extremely brutal crimes that has really negative connotations. So it's actually reserved for the worst of the worst in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know for the women that who have been labeled dangerous offenders, it actually goes a step further because any time um, that a woman is labeled a dangerous offender, it's not that she's just a dangerous offender. She's labeled the most dangerous woman in Canada. Right. So it takes it a step further, and uh, that's a pretty, it's a pretty, um, that's a pretty heavy designation to be labeled as the most dangerous woman in Canada. Uh, because it's something that will follow you for anything that you try to do. What was that like for you? I mean, it must seem almost out of body to have other people referring to you as the most dangerous woman in Canada. I think that it's, um, I don't think it's something that you get used to. Um, And I think when you consider, when you take the label aside and actually look at the women as, mothers or sisters, partners, and then when you actually think about their family or or the children involved, if they have children, you you start to think about how, not so much that it affects you, but how it affects your relationships with your family, with your children, and just with people in, in, in general. So I think that it is a really like I said, heavy label to have for for women. And I also know from my own experience that it wreaks a lot of havoc in your life, having that label attached to you, because it's not something that you can shake, especially if it's in the media, which it usually ends up for, for dangerous offenders, but more specifically on women, because it's generally reserved for men, or most of the dangerous offenders in Canada are men. So it's... Um, yeah, it, it follows you like a, like a bad smell. And did it affect your experience on the inside, the label? I noticed that it was, uh, I was handled, uh, I believe one psychiatric assessment who, uh, that was written about me, the guy didn't even meet me. He was a CSC registered psychologist and I refused to meet with them at that point in time. Um, just because I had experienced, you know, had bad experiences with them with their labels. Uh, they did foul reviews, which means that if you choose not to meet with them, which is what I did most of the time, uh, they would just review your file, which was selected by CSC officials, and they would read that and make judgments or make clinical assessments based on what they were reading. Without and even so, meeting you. Yes, so actually one report that I refused uh, to participate in, the guy actually made probably close to 15 recommendations while I was on the management protocol, 
and one of his recommendations were was for the staff like the guards to handle me as though they were carrying a can of gasoline in one hand and a lit match in the other wow so this type of stuff with the dangerous offender designation and with the label of being the most dangerous woman in Canada had created almost this you know go ahead or green light for them to to manage me as so I you know I was the worst of the worst and that's what they did so it was easy for them to dehumanize me and um, not treat me uh, like I was somebody who had any emotions because they labeled me as somebody who didn't have emotions uh, which comes into the whole psychopathy uh, checklist and, and that label that goes hand in hand with a dangerous offender designation um, and even though that there you know there's been many um, studies and research and court rulings that have found the uh, psychopathy checklist to be invalid for Indigenous offenders and women offenders. They were still using that in virtually all of my hearings, virtually everything to justify keeping me in maximum security. In every review, they, they relied on that. So it's it goes hand in hand with a, a, a dangerous offender designation. Yeah, you can tell this is systemic, partly because of the fact that your story sounds similar to Ashley Smith's story in certain ways. Like earlier on the episode, Kim and I were talking about how every single guard that interacted with Ashley Smith would say, oh, well, she's extremely dangerous, but she's never like that with me. Which kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, maybe she's just not dangerous. And you read her file, assumed she was dangerous, and then treated her as such. So I'm wondering, similarly, you survived really lengthy bouts in solitary confinement. Do you think you could perhaps describe solitary confinement for someone who has never experienced it? Well, I think there's different stages of solitary confinement. I mean, there's three different... um reasons why people uh, could be placed in segregation and and uh, one of them would be for like say um, they're put under investigation um, for something whatever a breach of the rules or whatever it is that it, it could be anything it's, it's pretty broad second would be a threat to the safety and security of the institution uh, or the last one would be um, there's a threat to the inmates uh, personal safety uh, that happens more in men's penitentiaries than it does with the women. Um, there's not really a protective custody type of unit in women's institutions. Uh, it's more for men. But um, for somebody who hasn't been in segregation or solitary confinement, which is the right term for it, um, I think it, it when you first experience it. It depends on what you're in there for. You could be in there for um, five days, ten days, uh, a year. In my case, I was in solitary confinement for in and out for two-thirds of my sentence, which was 18 years. And for eight years, I was under the management protocol uh, routine, uh, which is basically worse than a supermax for men but it was developed for women who were considered high risk to the institution. I was on it for eight years, 
and I spent six to six and a half years in 23-hour lockup on the management protocol. Wow. And um, so when you first get into segregation, um, you start to try to kind of develop a routine once you realize that there's kind of no end in sight. But when I when I had first been placed on the management protocol, it was in the men's penitentiary uh, in Quebec. So the regional reception center was where I was first placed on the management protocol, I was the first woman to be placed on it. And they had actually, that was the only penitentiary that had developed a time frame according to the management protocol. So I actually had step one, which is segregation, step two, partial segregation, and step three, reintegration. I had those three steps outlined on a document with a release date from the protocol, which would have been January 9th or 10th of 2005. So I knew what I would be doing for each phase. That was the only time I actually seen time frames um, or objectives or anything to do with what the management protocol was designed for, was stabilization, reintegration, that type of thing. But because the men's institutions or the, you know, they had us in men's penitentiaries, it was like sections uh, for women. And those started to close around 2004. And the new units started to open up like Grand Valley Institution, the new maximum security units. So every time they had moved me somewhere, they would actually put me back in segregation, even if I had made it to step two of the protocol, which was partial reintegration. So... I would actually go to a new institution and they would just kind of kibosh the whole plan and keep me in segregation while they developed a new plan. So that's where I started to see, wait a minute, there's something wrong here because I had those three steps outlined. I had a release date from this and now they're scrapping the whole thing and putting me in segregation again. So that's when I started to realize that this was probably going to be a human rights issue <laughs> yeah but you actually don't know that until you get deeper into it because mm -hmm. then they start to place restrictions on you that they don't even place on men and one of them that is uh, you know I've been pretty vocal about was part of the management protocol was that it varied from institution to institution so one of the restrictions they tried to place on me at one point was that I couldn't um, swear for 30 days. What? I've never heard of that. So, um, you know, back then I was like, okay, you can't, you can't tell me not to swear. I mean, that, so you're saying if I swear that I don't get to move ahead, I don't get four extra pencil crayons instead of six, right? Mm. Um, yeah, it just was one of those things so that, it just changed and the rules they imposed or some of the conditions they imposed, you've never even heard of. But like I said, you don't see that until you're maybe two years into solitary confinement. And by then you kind of are just struggling to hang on. So you either decide, okay, I, I'm just gonna try to somehow survive in here and 
not give up because I've seen and heard a lot of people unfortunately um, give up and hurt themselves, turn in on themselves and just give up. They just reduce themselves to non-existent people that just, it's crippling. That's all I can think to say. If you allow it to be, right? I can imagine that the experience of being in solitary confinement can start to, like you can start to internalize that experience. So I'm wondering how being in solitary confinement affected the way that you thought about yourself or perhaps your aspirations and goals and how you imagined your future. Well, I think that um, because I had, you know, experienced a lot of segregation from my early 20s and, and onward, I still didn't really have like a strong sense of who I was at that age. It was, I was still in my early 20s and, and whatnot. And so that's like a time in your life when you're actually supposed to be figuring out who you are and developing social ties and, you know, kind of experiencing the ups and downs of being in love, just normal stuff. But mm-hmm. um, So I think that being in such, you know, a tiny cubicle where you actually don't have any meaningful interactions most of my human contact was um, on the phone with my family or my my friends. Um, so you kind of lose that ability to interact in a normal way. You almost shy away from it, right. though you though you want it, like you want you want the interaction, but you just kind of lose that part of yourself. So I actually started to read a lot, you know. But I also got really angry, so I. I I wasn't really developing a, a like a the true self of who I would eventually come to be because I was so focused on surviving 23 right. hours uh, lockup for years. So I was mostly uh, I started to almost believe a lot of the stuff that they were saying about me because none of it was ever good. Right. There was some there were some moments like you know I knew that there was some people that had some good stuff to say about me you know but that I had known about myself, but I think that when I started to see all the reports come out that I wasn't participating in, um, it almost started to become like a self-fulfilling prophecy that, hey, maybe I am a really bad person. Maybe there's just something really, really wrong with me that I just can't change. So for, for somebody in their early 20s, when they're still trying to figure out who they are, I started to get really almost torn because I would think about who I was as a mother just a couple years before with my daughter when I had when I had my baby with me at the healing lodge and it was almost like I was in a state of constant cognitive dissonance because I couldn't fathom like how I could start to become the survivalist this almost like hardened person but when I thought of how I was with my baby it was just like this completely different person so you almost like split into two different people and you just you get fragmented because you start to lose a a sense of who you really are I'm really inspired by the fact that you were able to I guess survive first of all you know now you're doing talks with Kim and you have written some materials for women who have been through similar situation than you or might go through a similar situation to you and I'm wondering how you were able to land in that place. Like, how are you where you are now? And maybe you could talk about some of the things you're involved in now in community. So I think that to get to this place, it took a lot of 
um, therapy, but before I got into therapy, um, I had to make a choice in my life to actually start accepting responsibility for a lot of the choices that I had made in my life that led to, you know, me getting more time, me, you know, picking up a dangerous offender designation. Um, it took a, it took a lot of um, thinking while I was in solitary confinement to actually realize like nobody's going to change my life for me except me. So I got myself into the situation. I can get myself out because, you know, you're right. I, I can be my own worst enemy, but I can also be my own best friend. So I think a lot of it was to just, even if there was a lot of stuff restricted to me, I started to make, make the effort to actually take responsibility for what I was doing, no matter how much I felt was unfair or unjust, I started to realize that I can only just take control of what I think, what I feel. And even if there's things that are not right, there's other mechanisms to go about, you know, getting my voice heard about the treatment or the treatment of myself, the treatment of other women. And so I really like wrote a lot. I, I wrote a lot of poetry. I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time exercising, uh, you know, working with elders. Um, I just decided to turn my behavior around because like I said, I realized nobody was going to help me except me. So once I started to have that, uh, stabilization and accept a lot of the stuff that I had done and accepted responsibility for my actions, you know, and stop blaming people and actually started to just own where, where I had gone wrong. I started to feel a lot more comfortable in my own skin and was able to actually make the connections between a lot of the way. I reacted to a lot of the intergenerational trauma that, you know, I've been through, my family's been through, uh, stuff like that. So, and then I started to work with an independent therapist who is not with CSE. So that took the better part of a year for me to actually be able to trust this person, even though I knew that he wasn't working with CSE, he was there to work with me. It took, took a lot of therapy, um, and a lot of testing, you know, of the relationship to actually be able to trust this person. And uh, we worked on a, a lot of issues that we still work on to this day. But, you know, he was he was a great, he's, he was like a huge force in helping to help me see my behavior and make a lot of connections um, and stuff like that. So it was like a lot of just cutting the bullshit, if I can say that, and just mm -hmm. owning where I was going wrong. Uh, so... Some of this, so it took like a lot of stuff to get out because I had a lot of people opposed to me getting out. And I mean, we won't have to get into that because I brought it up at the Senate Committee on Human Rights. But there was a lot of resistance to me actually getting out. So it definitely wasn't easy for me to get out. There was a lot of uh, curveballs. Uh, but I just kept reminding myself of the bigger picture and that was to get out, um, to reconnect with my daughter and my family and to try to give hope to people inside who feel like they're never going to get out. So yeah, so some of the stuff that um, I've been working on, uh, I did some contract writing when I first got out and uh, Senator Kim Pate allowed me, uh, gave me an opportunity actually to um, participate in researching some policies and making some recommendations um, as to what women needed to do to succeed when they get out. But I also worked at the downtown women, or sorry, downtown east side women's shelter. So yeah, but a lot of this stuff has just been, you know, I've been out now, I believe, since May. 
So I've been out for a while. My, my, my pearl gets reviewed every six months. You just got to keep going. Don't give up. Don't relapse because things are going to work out. You just got to keep going. The federal government is speaking of Bill C-83 as if it's going to bring an end to segregation and solitary confinement. I'm wondering what you think of the bill, but also if you could tomorrow change the way that solitary confinement and segregation is used, how would you change it? Well, I think the bill is still, uh, I mean, it poses a lot of problems because it's something that is is mostly based on theory and what they need to change. And, and change doesn't happen overnight. It takes years, right? So just because they have this, it's like the Gladue principles. It's it's in, it's intent. It's not, it's, it's nothing is guaranteed in, in stone just because somebody puts some fancy words together. It's just still rhetoric. Um, and it doesn't, no matter what they're introducing now, you know, some of what I read about it is that they're introducing, so two hours out of your cell? Okay, so that's yeah. supposed to make Instead it better? Yeah. Right. But that doesn't change the fact of what happened to people like Ashley Smith or some of the men and women who lost their lives to solitary confinement. It's almost like, you know, they say take the uh, computers, right? So people used to be able to have computers sent in inside prison. But something happened and they grandfathered them in. So anybody who had computers before October 2002, they grandfathered them in, right? And so if they just wanted to keep up the maintenance and whatnot, they could do that. So I guess I'm kind of wondering, even if they're introducing this bill, are you going to grandfather in people who have already taken their lives? Wow. Yeah. How does that work? Right? Um, And if I could change anything about segregation... I think that they shouldn't have solitary confinement because it does nothing to help people. If they actually want to change stuff, instead of investing more money into the prison system, they actually need to start investing more money into the community and what uh, triggers or what um, contributing factors lead to incarceration. So that's where they need to invest the money, is is not in more prisons, uh, not in more supermax units. Um, they actually need to invest it in the community. It, that's that's my opinion, and they just need to get rid of solitary confinement because it it makes good people bad and it makes bad people worse. For more on what average folks like myself can do to end the dangerous and damaging practice of segregation in Canada, we decided to chat with prison advocate Elle Jones. Elle shared her experiences of advocating with and for folks who are incarcerated, particularly prisoners who are placed in segregation. Okay, so my next guest is Elle Jones. Elle Jones is actually um, one of my biggest inspirations here in Canada. She's a poet, activist, community organizer, scholar, teacher, radio host, and journalist. Elle was the Poet Laureate of Halifax from 2013 to 2015. 
And since 2016, Elle has co-hosted a radio show called Black Power Hour that provides a space for prisoners to engage in lessons on Black history and call in to share poetry and rap they've written. Elle is currently the Nancy's Chair in Women's Studies at Mount St. Vincent University. So please turn your attention to Elle Jones. Elle, how are you doing today? I'm okay. How are you? I'm pretty good. I think a lot of people know you from your activism with prison abolition and, and supporting your friends who are on the inside. So do you mind just sharing with us when and why you got involved with prisoners' rights and abolition work? So there's two answers to that question. The first historical answer is when I was about 13 years old, I picked up the works of Oscar Wilde, which was on the bookshelf at home. And I read this poem called The Ballad of Reading Jail. And it was the first, I was very aware that I was reading something that was adult, like not a children's book. And in that poem, Oscar Wilde talks about his experience in prison. And that was the first issue I understood, like a social justice issue that I really, really understood and was like, this is an injustice. Right. So that year we had to do a essay in social studies on a social issue. And a lot of people did like Photoshop, magazines and stuff. And I decided to do women in prison. So I went down to the local Elizabeth Fry and I got all these like pamphlets on housing in prison. I wrote this art, uh, essay about like why women in prison should be able to have their children about like the importance of cottage housing in prison. So wow. that was something that obviously spoke to me. Um, but out of that, I didn't become a lawyer or something. It's just what you think the trajectory would be. But that, I guess, really sparked um, part of my interest in justice and also coming from a family that had a very strong social justice background. My grandfather was an anti-colonial activist. Um, so that's part of it. And then the other piece to that, which is related to the poetry, is through the arts. So when I started doing spoken word, I was doing a lot of poems about political issues and social issues, and people weren't really into hearing that from me. Um, so when I first started, I couldn't really perform a lot of places. And the people who wanted me to perform were people from like so-called marginalized groups. So it would be like refugees, sex workers, women in shelters. And those are all the criminalized groups as well. So as I went and wrote with people and performed for people or was in those spaces, I was learning more and more about criminalization and the same kind of reasons why I was marginalized as a black woman that were also through these communities. And that was actually how I entered prison was through doing creative writing work. Um, I think for a lot of people who do this work, once you start learning about what happens in prisons and start talking to people about um, the, the very real awful things that occur in those spaces, I think it takes you over in particular ways. You can't not speak about it. It's so urgent. And it's so unknown. So I think once you learn about it, uh, you just find yourself keep having to speak and keep having to learn more and say more. So I think that's what happened to me. Yeah. Do you mind sharing some of the things that you feel like you've learned over the years about prison justice work and the way to do that work in an effective and in a responsible way? So everything I've learned doing prison justice work, and I don't like the terms you have to use when we call it work or whatever, right? Um, because people living in prison don't get to call it the work. Um, it comes from people who are in prison. I think the most important thing we can always recognize, must always recognize, is that when we're dealing with something to do with human rights, at the center of that, at the center of that case is someone whose rights are being violated. And we always have to keep that in mind. Um, so, of course, those of us who have these platforms get to speak in ways that people who are incarcerated don't. Um, so I think we always have to ask permission to be working collectively, to be making sure that what we're saying isn't putting people at risk and that we have the permission of people we're speaking with, so not speaking for, but speaking with. So I've been really lucky and I'm very grateful in my life that 
uh, with the people that I've met who have taught me everything and then said to me, can you write about this or written stuff for me to be able to publish, which is happening a lot more lately, which I'm really glad that people in prison are doing their own work and getting their voices out there without having someone else tell that story. Um, right. And to me, that's the most important thing that the people that are centered in this work are the people that have this experience. There is nothing that we can know about prisons or say about prisons that people who are incarcerated aren't experts in and don't know. And I think we always have to remember that as we move forward. Right. So this episode, we're talking about segregation. And as you know, Kim obviously wants segregation to be removed from youth in Canada. I'm wondering, what's your perspective on segregation? Yeah, so I mean, this conversation has come up a lot with the alleged intended change to legislation that's supposed to end or change solitary confinement. And I think most of us have come to the conclusion, have noticed that it's not changing solitary confinement so much as just shifting around the words we use. So calling something else, just doing the same thing, but calling it something else. Um, it, right. I think we have to take the position, I know we have to take the position that there is no room in any kind of just prison system. Well, I don't believe in the prison system to start with, but in any kind of just country, solitary confinement just is not compatible with the values of human rights, dignity, or humanity. Um, so we must continue to call for an end to solitary confinement. Um, we know, for example, and I can talk about today, uh, we're doing a vigil for Solomon Fakiri, who died in solitary confinement, was killed in solitary confinement in Lindsay. And we know that so many of the deaths in prison occur in solitary confinement with people suffering from mental illnesses. So we know the kind of torture and death and abuse that happens in those situations. Uh, when you talk to people who have been in solitary confinement and they tell you in their own words what they experience. So we've had pregnant women that are in solitary confinement with no mattresses and have lost their babies as a result. Uh, people talk about hearing voices, having auditory hallucinations, seeing hallucinations, walking through the walls, trying to get out, thinking they're walking through the door because they're hearing their children outside, feeling incontrollable rage, finding themselves suddenly slashing themselves or, you know, writing in the wall in your own feces or blood, like just these acts that just overtake you and you become seemingly inhumane and seemingly enraged, you know, and they'll talk about just how violent what happens to them is and that that stays with you even after you get out. Um, there's been cases where people have lost the ability to use language and, and studies that have shown that that can be permanent, the kind of change in your language centers, uh, in a, be feeling unable to interact with other people when you get out. And the idea that we do this to people and then those people return to our communities, if nothing else, that should concern us, um, that right. we put people through this torture and then release them back. But it should concern us anyway on the human level. The U.S. has, of, a court, has of course, declared more than 15 days of solitary confinement to be torture. But People will tell you that it doesn't take 15 days for these kind of effects. What happens there is brutal and it is torture and it is so damaging and there should be no room for it. At least that, if we change nothing else, we should be able to change it. Right. I think as somebody who has been starting to be more and more involved with prison justice work and abolition work, it can be really disheartening to see the power that CSC has in Canada and the power that these institutions have over people's lives. So what advice would you have for someone who would like to be involved, would like to advocate for things like, you know, an end to solitary confinement and segregation in Canada? It's true, it's very difficult. So I was having a conversation today, I'm going back to Solomon Fakiri because it's on my mind, because we're doing this uh, vigil, but 
I was just having a conversation today about how many inquiries does it take before we know what these places are? Like, what are they other than places of death and torture? You know, we've had the Ashley Smith inquiry. We had the inquiry into Kingston Prison for Women in Nova Scotia. We had the Howard Hyde inquiry. So we have all these inquiries, and then nothing changes and more people die. So that can definitely feel like, what can we do? Um, you know, we, we just keep coming back to the same place. And whatever cycle of reform that we're told is taking place doesn't seem to make any real changes. So that can be very discouraging. Um, but I think at the same time, we have to understand that when people have the will and people organize together, we can make change. An example the guys in prison gave me. So they wrote an article about three weeks ago about the clemency given to Centoya Brown. And one of the things they say in this statement where these incarcerated men call for the release of all women that are incarcerated because of killing their abusers or having to retaliate upon those who are abusing, exploiting them. And they say that they listen to Democracy Now! and they heard Santoya's lawyers say that, you know, there's 5,000 calls a day that were made to the office of the governor. And when that happens, they had to get new numbers. You know, when, when 5,000 people a day are willing to call, then justice happens. So we know we've seen over and over again as much despair as we can feel and, and feel that, you know, things don't seem to be changing. We have seen the abolition of slavery. You know, we have seen so many changes that we made, but we have to make that together. I mean, it's not going to happen if one person, one senator, one prisoner speaks out. And with prison justice issues, the issue is that until we, the public, um, have the will to end stuff like tough on crime policies, to end the idea that this just isn't popular, that it's okay for people to be treated this way because they're criminals. And of course, once you're labeled a criminal, then the idea is that anything can be done to you and you can never be believed because you have that label. So the minute you're charged or in prison, you are untrustworthy and you're not a human being. So if you're beat to death or if you're put in solitary confinement, you know, what does it matter? You deserved it, don't go to jail. You know, we always hear that. And so it's on us as the family members, as the loved ones, as the community members, and as just members of a country that's supposed to believe in human rights, um, it's on us to, to change that narrative, to end that stigma, and to make it not okay for our politicians to tolerate this, and not okay for this to be happening in our societies. And we do have that power, because we have done it, but it means doing the work every day together. Yeah, so when we talk about doing the work every day and sustainability, I'm wondering what motivates you? What, what helps you to get up every day and continue on like, yeah, this is the work I'm going to continue doing because I have to? I think that have to is part of it. I think that one, once you know something, once people call upon you, I don't think you have a choice. I mean, you always have a choice in the sense of you can choose not to do things, but I don't believe that if you're living an ethical life or you have any integrity, I don't think you can turn away when an issue of injustice comes to you. I think you have no choice but to speak because somebody is experiencing that. So again, I go back to that, that as I speak to you, there are people in solitary confinement, there are people getting pepper sprayed, there are pregnant women in prison, there are people uh, not having phone calls and not knowing where their family is, there are children without their parents, and I can go on and on and on, and that is happening right now. And so we have to be acutely aware of that, and knowing that, what else can we do but to fight? Um, what else can we do but to stand, stand with each other and stand as human beings together? I just don't think it's a choice. I think back to things like the abolition of slavery, where I think about my enslaved ancestors and those people who looked like us, who got up and told those stories of the worst torture in their life to audiences, 
so that they could end slavery, you know, and, and talked about being whipped and talked about being raped. And they did it because they knew that that story would make a difference. And I think of all the people that get on the phone to me and say, hey, can I tell you about this healthcare issue that happened? Or there's this guy down the hall and this is happening to him. Or let me tell you about my friend. They really need help. They are doing that same work of witnessing and, and giving testimony. And when that happens, I think the only thing we can do as ethical, moral human beings is to do our best to amplify that. So I don't think it's a question of not doing. I think um, yes, of course, hearing those things is hard. Of course, knowing that we live in a country where these things happen and happen overwhelmingly to indigenous people and women and people with mental illnesses and people who are disabled, um, that's a terrible thing. But those of us who have the platform and the privilege, those of us who have the freedom because we are not in prison, what else can we do but continue to speak that and bring that forward? So Kim, those interviews were packed with a lot of information, a lot of emotion, and they were also really inspiring. What did you think? Well, at moments I wanted to cry, I, and at um, other moments wanted to cheer, because I think everything that both that they're talking about is what everybody should know about what's happening in our prisons. And um, as Elle said very well, uh, when, once you know, you can't unknow it. And as Renee said, um, if people go in and see what's happening, then I think most people would change their minds about these these areas. And I hope that after listening to this podcast, every single person, one, shares it with others, not because we're doing it, but because it's information they know needs to be out there, and that everybody who listens calls their MP, phones their MP, emails their MP, and their senator, and lets people know we want to see these changes happening. And during the upcoming election, it's a prime time to start having these discussions if you haven't already had them or continue them if you're already part of this discussion and demand that we invest in communities not in prisons once you know you have a responsibility yeah that's you thank you for listening to this first episode of appointed please subscribe to appointed on apple music spotify or wherever you get your podcasts you'll hear from us soon